Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word which you recorded for us by your spirit. And uh, we thank you uh, for, your, for the word made flesh that we might see in your son, Jesus Christ, in flesh and blood, the love that you have for us. Uh, we thank you that uh, you have made yourself known to us. And we pray that you would continue to do that good work this morning as we consider uh, the word you have inspired and as we eat the sacraments, the word made flesh. We ask that you would feed us, you would send us out into the world with your blessing and in your strength. Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Zechariah this morning. And if you've been gone for much of the summer, then let me catch you up on the setting for this book. If you have a broad sense of Israel's history, you'll know that at some point, Jerusalem was invaded by the Babylonians and the people were taken into exile. And the Babylonians in turn were conquered by the Persians who acquired control of Israel and her people in the process. The Persians, unlike the Babylonians, uh, allowed the Hebrew people to begin returning to their homeland. Not everyone returned at once, but a small number did, and their first order of business was to begin the process of reconstructing the temple. And it's about here that the people, that the prophecy of Zechariah is set. The people are living back in the, in the land in a state of unfulfilled completion. There's a measure of joy at being back in the land, accompanied by a dissonance brought on by the fact that people still remain in exile and life in the land is hard. They have a measure of hope for the first time, and yet it is still quite dim. And it's in this state of mind that a a contingency of people send messengers to where the temple is being built to ask whether they should keep fasting, right? Mourning and practicing abstinence, fasting, right? On the fifth month or not. The question is posed in verse three, should I mourn and practice abstinence in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And in order to understand this question, we must understand what was significant about the fifth month that it became an occasion for fasting. And really looking ahead to verse five, we see that fasting was taking place in not just the fifth month, but the seventh month as well. And really, really, if we look even further ahead to the 19th verse of chapter eight, we see that there was fasting in the fourth month and the 10th month as well. So altogether then the people fasted during this time of unfulfilled completion on the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the 10th month. What was significant about these months that these people fasted regularly at these intervals and were inquiring of the priests and the prophets at the construction site of the temple, whether they should continue the practice. Well, people fast for a number of reasons, right? Fasting is, is nearly always related to the desire to see God's intervention in the life of those who fast, whether to bring healing, forgiveness, or a change in the present negative predicament of the one fasting. This is almost certainly why the people were fasting at these monthly intervals. They wanted their circumstances to change. They wanted God to do something. 
And each of these months, the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth, were months when things fell apart. In the fourth month, Jerusalem's walls were breached and its leadership fled the city. In the fifth month, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. In the seventh month, Gedaliah, the first governor of the new Babylonian province of Judah, which arose out of the ashes of the former kingdom, was assassinated. And in the 10th month, the siege of Jerusalem began. These people fasted during these months because they wanted to see their fortunes change. They wanted to see these things undone. The only problem was that what they were experiencing was divinely ordered as a, a consequence for their behavior, right? God had arranged the exile as a method of his punishment. He even called Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, his servant. And the people, therefore, were, were mourning the pain of the consequences they brought upon themselves through their disobedience. And as long as, they were, as long as their fasting was unaccompanied by true reformation of their behavior, their fasting would be ineffective in persuading God to have mercy on them. Fasting without penitence amounted to mere pouting over consequences, like a child who screams because you put her in her room but never connects the punishment to the cause. She's just upset she's in her room and will resume the behavior that landed her there the second she gets out. Without reformation, this fasting is contrition for having been caught, but not contrition for the crime. And so it was for these people, just like it is often for us. They send messengers to inquire whether they should keep up the fasting, and rather than an answer, they get a question put to them. And we know that their fasting was not paired with penitence because of the question that gets put to them in verse 5. God asks, when you fasted and lamented these five, in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And then a second question comes in verse 6. And when you eat and you drink, do you not eat and drink only for yourselves? God's revealing to them that their religious behavior, whether fasting or feasting, is ineffective and meaningless unless it's done with reference to him. He's unimpressed and unmoved otherwise. Fasting must be accompanied by contrition and penitence or else it's just a pity party. Feasting must be accompanied by gratitude, otherwise it's just revelry. What God has desired all along, what God still desires, is a people who live not for themselves, but for the sake of others. It's what he asked of these people's ancestors before the exile, and it's what he demands of this inquiring people as the exile comes to an end. The list of things he demands in, in 8, 16, and 17, and also in 7, 9, and 10, all require self-sacrifice. He asked it of the people pre-exile. He asked it of them post-exile. Tell the truth. Right? Truth-telling often comes at your own expense. Right? Render true judgments that make for peace. Peace requires someone to swallow the revenge that brews in their hearts and break the cycle of mutual self-destruction. Peace is hard. Do not devise evil against one another. Love no false oath. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, alien, or poor. This one 
is significant precisely because this list consists of people in the ancient world who would not have been able to pay you back, either in money or prestige. The only motivation for caring for a person in one of these classes of people could be selfless love. And this is what he demands of anyone who would follow after him. This is what taking your cross, taking up your cross looks like. Sacrificing yourself for the glory of God and the good of humanity. And when we don't willingly obey God, then God has his ways of making us hear his voice, calling us into his service. And there are two major ways in which God attempts to get through to us in order to motivate us to fulfill his commands. Denial and abundance. Each of these approaches are taken by him to accomplish the same end, and he employed both of these methods on the Hebrew people with the same result. Through denial, he he humbles us so that in contrition and penitence, we might return to him and submit ourselves to his demands to think more of others than of ourselves. Amos 4 is a perfect example of this approach. God's talking to his people and he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. Cleanness of teeth means they had nothing to eat, right? I give you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there was still three months to the harvest, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. I laid waste to your gardens and your vineyards, The locust devoured your fig trees and your olive trees, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Now, anticipating the objection that who would want to return to a God who struck them? What kind of logic is that? It's the kind of logic that a, of a God who knows that he is actually what's best for us. You're going to have to serve somebody or something. We're worshiping creatures by nature, cre- created to worship and to serve. But in our fallenness, we worship the sorts of things that destroy us. Only in the worship of God, our creator, will we be satisfied and fulfilled. And God knows that. He knows what is, that he is what's best for us. And he also knows that our stubbornness and pride can sometimes only be penetrated by pain. C.S. Lewis writes, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. See, when experiencing denial and its accompanying misery, the the remedy actually isn't to wallow in our happiness, throw a pity party, but to search ourselves to engage in service. The Book of Common Prayer includes a prayer for those who live alone that's always struck me as interesting. It goes like this, Almighty God, whose son had nowhere to lay his head, grant that all those who live alone may not be lonely in their solitude, but that following in his steps, 
they may find fulfillment in loving you and their neighbors. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This prayer has always struck me as interesting because it's saying that the lonely will find fulfillment through service to God and their neighbor. I think if I were to write a prayer for the lonely, I'd never get beyond the request for the lonely to experience a sense of God's presence, the fullness of his spirit with them, to experience comfort. But this prayer was written by a far wiser person than I. This prayer seems loneliness as an instrument of God to draw a person into greater dependence on him, to spur the lonely person to service where they will find satisfaction and fulfillment in their loneliness. The prayer of this person experiencing denial of any kind is therefore twofold. Use this in me and use me. Any fasting undertaken or prayers spoken in that spirit will surely not be rebuffed by the God who is eager to assist those who look beyond themselves even in their suffering. Denial is one way in which God makes his voice heard. Abundance is the other. Through abundance, he he fills us with gratitude, thereby making us generous in turn. Ezekiel 16 is a great example of the abundance that God lavishes on people. In Ezekiel 16, the Hebrew people are pictured as this newborn baby left by its mother in a field to die. It's thrashing around in its blood. And God comes along and sees this child and tells this baby to live. He picks it up. He cleans it. He anoints it with oil. He clothes it with fine linen and covers it with beautiful jewelry so that this baby, once abandoned, grows up to be a queen. It's a moving picture of what God does with his people. But the rest of the story shows that even abundance cannot keep our hearts from straying. Neither abundance or denial are actually capable of keeping us from abandoning the one who adopts us. The problem with each of these approaches and God knows this about us, is that neither of them work on a stubborn humanity whose hearts are hard and whose ears are stopped up so that they cannot hear God either whispering in pleasure or shouting in pain. God calls us to return to him in the circumstances of life in order that we might live as he demands. The summary of God's law that Jesus provides in the Gospels is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To illustrate the ineffectiveness of these approaches to create the sort of people God desires, we have only to compare the the pre-exilic people to the same people post-exile. We've already met the post-exilic, roughly speaking, people. Their experience of denial did little to bring about true contrition and reformation. They fasted, but only for themselves. They lamented, but really they just felt sorry for themselves. God asked, did you fast for me? The implied answer is no. Their destitution did not achieve penitence. Anticipating an objection to, to God's expectation that pain should, re, should result in penitence, God offers a defense of himself in verse 7 by pointing out that abundance didn't produce penitence in their ancestors either. Before anyone had the chance to say that they would have been more receptive to God if he had been more generous to them, God points out in verse 7 that abundance did little to earn the obedience of their ancestors either. Before you go saying that God's blessing would make it easier to be obedient, then consider the pre-exilic people. 
That's what's being communicated in verse 7, where God points out that the pre-exilic people were also given the law of God as the standard of life. Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? Were they not asked to do the same thing as I'm asking of you to show kindness and mercy to one another, to support the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor? And look at their status when they were commanded to offer such obedience. Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, along with the towns around it, and the Negev and the Shephelah were also inhabited. They had peace and fullness and prosperity. But, but comes in verse 11, they refused to listen, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears in order not to hear. They made their hearts adamant in order not to hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. They had everything, and yet that abundance did little to soften their hearts or open their ears. God gave them all that they had, and they refused to give themselves to him in return. So he sent them into exile, where, as he says in verse 13, he refused to hear their pleas for mercy or respond to their fasts. Just as when I called, they would not hear, so God says when they called, I would not hear. They were scattered among all the nations, and the land was left desolate. The pleasant land was made desolate. As we've learned from this delegation inquiring about fasting, the desolation did not achieve the desired effect. They fasted, but only out of self-pity. Neither the experience of abundance or of desolation alone can alter the affections to turn a person back to God. The problem is a problem of the heart. A transformation of the heart is necessary. It's the same problem that you and I have. Our thoughts and desires are constantly bending towards ourselves. We tend towards self-pity or ingratitude depending on the season, upset with God or ignoring him. In chapter 8, though, God declares his jealousy for us, to have a relationship with us, to see us flourishing, which is really the same thing. He loves us, and so he sets out to win our affections by sending us his son. The son of God took on flesh, was named Jesus at his birth. He lived a faultless life. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's law, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. And yet, he was crucified as a criminal. At his death, even God the Father abandoned him. Jesus cried out to the Father, and the Father gave him the cold shoulder. Jesus cried out, God refused to listen. The Father treated Jesus just like he promised to treat the Hebrew people in verse 13. Just as when I called, they would not hear, so when they call, I will not hear. Jesus heard and was obedient all his life, and yet still God would not respond to his cries on the cross. He left him to die, not because Jesus deserved it, but because we deserved it. And Jesus had come to take our place so that in him we might know the love of God and learn how great our offense is against him. The the people experiencing denial need to know that they are not abandoned, but loved even in the midst of their denial. It's this knowledge that that moves a person outside of themselves to become, through the pain, the person whom God seeks for his service and for himself. 
The person experiencing denial must look at the cross, remember that no nails could hold the Son of God fast to a piece of wood. It was love alone that held him there. If you're one of the people who are enduring great pain and loss, then the death of Jesus shows you that you are not alone and that you are loved. Jesus endured the full force of death and descended into the grave. He was dead three days before he rose to new life. But he tasted death and he defeated it so that your pain might be temporary and his love and presence might temper your experience of it. There is no low point where he has not descended ahead of you and where he is not able to lend his light. And it's this love that will transform your heart. It will fill you up even in the midst of your suffering so that you will become whom God desires. The love of Christ will change you in the midst of denial. You will know that there's a way back, for his arms are open. On the other hand, the the people experiencing abundance need to be reminded of their unworthiness, right? The people living free and easy must be humbled to remember that they have nothing and are nothing apart from God. They must look to the cross and remember that the only reason Jesus is up there in the first place is because of their sin. The people who are at ease in their abundance are taught in the death of Jesus just how unworthy they are of such a gift. They need to be humbled. They deserve the kind of neglect and death that Jesus suffered, and yet they're experiencing prosperity and rest. Lest they should become ungrateful, the death of Jesus is a constant reminder of the grace that belongs to them. It humbles them to spend themselves and their resources for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. It's not wrong to have much, but it is wrong if the much you have distracts you from the commands of God to love him and to love your neighbor. The sacrifice of Christ will change you and oppress you into his service. Jesus Christ provides what is necessary to win your affections. Whether you're experiencing loss or abundance and to turn you into a person who lives their life, whether feasting or fasting, in reference to God. As we close, I want to close with this prayer. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life, we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.